My guest today is my dear friend Tim Sawyer, a music producer, guitarist, and sound dealer from the north of England. Thanks for joining me today, Tim. Thank you so much. Great to hear you. Uh, my pleasure. So, Tim is joining me for what may be the first in a series of episodes generally titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Musician? So, as some of you listening may know, I'm a musician and singer and voice teacher. And and as those of you listening now know, Tim is also a musician. So we're going to chat about what it is to be a musician. And also, we're going to make some music. So I, with my voice here on the microphone, Tim has his guitar. So Tim, one of the things I usually do to start a show is a bit of an improvisation, a musical improvisation to just get things going. So Let's dive in, and and you can make whatever sounds you make, and I'll join you. Fantastic. Okay. Take it. Very nice. <laughs> Lovely. So, Tim, you sing as ever. Oh, thank you. Well, we, we clearly 
both improvise and improvise well, and that's a major mainstay of both of our musical languages, clearly. And this is something that's always very interesting for me to talk with other musicians about. What would you say for me about your relationship with improvisational music making and that whole the whole realm of, of making music up in the moment without a prior plan? Mm. Um, to me, it's like a stream of consciousness thing. So really being in the moment and being an aerial to receive so that you become the instrument. Um, I can, when I first started off with improvisation, I was playing the instrument and learning uh, scales and so on and, and the the patterns, the stepping stones um, fr from which in, initially, you know, like when you're learning to, to ride a push bike and you would be having your uh, your stabilizers, as we call them in England, I don't know if it's the same thing. In, uh, in oh, training, training wheels, yeah, yes. And for my American listeners, an aerial is an antenna in America. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yes. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very big on we all broadcast and receive. And um, the more in the present moment that we are, the, the more we can receive and broadcast. So, uh, yeah, so for me, scales and, and so on, and uh, that was initially how I got into improvisation. And then uh, very, very quickly became just someone who, who just liked to make their own sound with that as well. So I, um, I dipped into a lot of different styles just out of a love of all styles of music, really. And um, yes, and I think as well. I think that just reflects to be a musician. It's like how we approach music is how we approach life. For me, so um, you know, at school I had people of, of different sexes and all different races, and uh, to me it was fascinating. Uh, a couple of years before I left high school, there was a guy from Uganda who uh, who came and joined our class, and to me it was just like this amazing spellbinding experience of finding out that this new culture and experiences, it was an adventure for me just to talk to this guy. And that mm -hmm. is reflected in music as well. And within my improvisation, if I was to sit back and, and listen, I wouldn't remember a lot of what I played. Um, however, what I would do would be to hear all of those influences that came through from past listening. And uh, yes, you know what I'm saying? It's like, Absolutely. To me, um, the spiritual side of music, because you and I can just cut straight to this. <laughs> um, yes. None, none of that, okay, let's talk for 30 minutes and then jump in with the spiritual nature of music. Let's just get straight in. Um, so, Agreed. So for me, being thoroughly present when you're improvising is akin to a deep meditation. So... When I, when I improvise, everything else just fades and I am, I'm totally present. Uh, I'm not zoning out. I'm actually zoning in. But what I'm zoning yes. is just one thing, which is yes. to be, uh, the, to receive and become the instrument. So I tend to, as quickly as possible, um, and sometimes before I play, I'll meditate and get into the right state that I want to uh, play from. Um but other times, obviously, that's not possible if you're just out at uh, a jam night, open mic night. So as as soon as possible, I think it's just through, <laughs> I think I've just conditioned myself to go into trance really quickly when I have an instrument nearby. Um, and so yes. I just played then. I don't know what I played. Um, I, I'll listen. All mm. oh, right, okay. Uh, but I have, I have no idea. 
Um, and so for me, it's about getting in that state, which is, which is somewhat of a spiritual endeavor, isn't it? You know, to connect with source Completely. and for, for what we play, for that to be the soundtrack to what that means to us, how that manifests through us. So that's improvisation for me. Yeah, I like that. I connect with a lot of things you said around that. One thing that I have been fascinated by for, for much of my musical life, specifically about guitarists, this has been my experience as a musician. Now, I'm a pianist and singer, and I am a versatile musician, not unlike yourself, by which I mean I can play and do play many styles of music and sing in many styles of music rather well, if I do say so myself. And as a singer, I'm fairly unusual to sing in as wide a variety of styles as I do. And the only category of musician that I have met that fairly regularly can meet me for versatility, and certainly not every guitarist, but but quite a, a number of guitarists have been in this category where I can work with a guitarist and he can do any and every style that I can. And that has happened more often with guitarists than with any other kind of musician. And I'm curious if you might have some insight for me as to what is it about guitarists that seems to make you folks, on average, the most versatile musicians on earth? Hmm. Something I've been wondering about actually for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what comes to mind for me is because uh, I'm at my v- most versatile, even though I started off playing uh, uh, classical acoustic guitar when uh, mm-hmm. when I was ten. Yes, in uh, 19- 1979, I started playing guitar. So, uh, so even though I came to it by the way of acoustic, and I still think there's something um, that is quite crucial about being able to, even if you are predominantly uh, an electric guitar player, I think there's something very crucial about just being able to pick up, you know, just an acoustic guitar, yes, wood and wire, and create with that. I think yes, very instant, very primal with that. In fact, some of the most spiritual experiences I've yes. had with music has just been sat down, totally tranced out with an, with an acoustic guitar. Um, it, you know, yes. So anyway, so I think it's really important for anybody to be able to do that with the guitar. So that being said, the electric guitar is relatively a new instrument, and certainly in terms of the uh, the styles, um, say from 1947 onwards, um, that the guitar has been through in such a short time, it's been a lot. So, so, so for me, learning electric, I had a wealth of styles within a short historical, relatively short historical time frame, considering the amount of, of stylistic movement that went on, you know, yes. say rock and roll onwards, it's like, or say, sorry, early blues uh, onwards, uh, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, um, you know, folk, um, and then electric, you know, electric folk, um, and then all that mm-hmm. music um, from, you know, San Francisco and from a lot of the West Coast in the mid to late 60s that came through. Um, with all the psychedelic and then prog in the 70s, uh, going full cycle, going right back to early beat music um, in the mid to late 70s. They called it punk, but it was essentially the other end of the cycle going mm-hmm. back. Um, and I, I just think for me, like when I was a kid going to my local um, library, there was a, a huge um, 
record section to it. And it was just so cheap to get records out. And it was a massive mm. yes. It was so cheap that it was like for the equivalent of um, a you know, US dollar or a, a pound over here, a euro, you could get four albums for a week, maybe two weeks. And um, wow. so initially I just started with people that I'd heard of and then I just went through, well, what album covers do I like? <laughs> So, uh, and then, mm-hmm. then when I'd gone through all that, I just went alphabetically. It's like, no, nope, never heard of this. Alan Parsons Project, what's that? Let's get some of that. Um, and uh, Bauhaus, never heard of it. Let's get some of that. Um, but So it, that exposed me to a lot of music, but the guitar um, has been through a lot of changes in a relatively short amount of time. So when I was learning, I had a mm-hmm. reservoir to, um, to draw from. So if I wanted blues, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just one aspect of blues. It was, do you want Hendrix blues? Mm-hmm. Do you want Muddy Waters blues? Do you want Chicago blues? You know, do you want, like, taking it back to Robert Johnson blues? And that's just one style. Um, yes. And and then, do you understand what I mean? It was like, so if, 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 I, I, do. if I was learning the flute, for example, and I, lo- I play a bit of flute um, uh, to record with, I'm certainly not a flautist, but... Um, but the, if I was learning that, then I would have been taught about specific eras a lot more, and they would have been uh, not that amount of stylistic change within a short amount of time. Yes. So that, yes. that's my instinct as to why guitarists do like a lot of different styles. Um, that, that makes sense. So I, if you think about the instrument of the guitar itself, the guitar as an instrument has evolved significantly within our lifetimes mm. and... And then if you go just shortly before our lifetimes, considerably a significant evolution in very recent times, whereas, say, contrasting that to the flute of the piano, the piano has more or less been what it is as an instrument, I would say, since well over a century mm. without any really significant changes since the late 19th to early 20th centuries in terms of the sound, the scale design what the instrument is capable of and what music is played on it and whereas with the guitar there have been just radical shifts within especially say the 1950s or the 1940s to the present just huge shifts and i think one of the aspects with the guitar is as well that certainly early on um like um have you heard of skiffle music i think it was quite a no it was it predated rock and roll and it was um essentially where kids that couldn't afford instruments for the most part. I've seen some pictures of um, some kind of Appalachian stuff that's a bit like this, where like the gut bucket, mm. is it called? Gut bucket? Love that music. Yeah. So it's essentially what have we got laying around the house uh, and how yes. can we use it to percuss? How can we how can we make some kind of makeshift uh, upright bass? You know? um, so Skip yes. came out of that pre-rock and roll energy. And there were all these like old beaten up uh, acoustic guitars you can see in footage. There's actually um, Jimmy Page actually. There's, a, there's um, quite a well known clip on YouTube of uh, Jimmy Page. Um, I don't know. He must have been about twelve, twelve years old. Hmm. Uh, a black and white hmm. clip, and it's and it's him playing and singing guitar in this uh, skiffle band, uh, sort of like wow. And uh, so so from that, it's like the. Um, the, the guitar was either affordable um, or not too out of reach, whereas certainly um, yes. here in England anyway, 
uh, a house that had a piano, you were quite fortunate if you could afford a piano. Um, that makes sense. And, so in the same thing, I would probably go for, for flutes, for violins, for generally speaking, those are not, those are not cheap instruments mm. to get a good flute, a good violin, a good piano. Those are all, that's a pretty, a pretty penny in fact. Indeed. And I think it was the same in America as, as well um, with uh, catalogs, um, you know, that people would shop and, and pay um, like monthly or weekly installments from. Um, do you, did you call them the same thing? Well, that that makes perfect sense, actually. Just the the accessibility from an economic standpoint of the guitar means that it all of a sudden it becomes possible for anybody who's a member of the working class mm -hmm. to acquire one. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of means that experimentation and, hey, what can you do with this or what can you learn? There's this uh, that makes sense now. This perfect, this really does make sense. Whereas when someone drops in, say, to taking piano lessons from the age of seven, which I did, because my parents said, thou shalt take piano lessons, which was the, you know, that was my impetus for starting. Although after a year, I was very glad that they had made me study for that first year, but I had to be forced for the first year. It was very much being inserted into a particular European classical way of music making which definitely comes with a set of commandments this is what music is this is how it's done yeah. you will do it like this young man sort of whereas the guitar it's this contrast of just somebody who got a guitar from who knows where from like you said from a catalog or or something he found in the garage or some something his uncle used to play but doesn't anymore and he's just putting on records and hacking around seeing what he can do but that is such a wellspring of creativity and, and versatility mm. that I've always, I found the guitarists of the world are just a, a tremendous resource when it comes to musical versatility. And there's a, a funny little fact of, of recent musical history, which I, I suspect most people probably don't know, but I, <laughs> I know some arcane facts like this. So you, you may or may not know that the very first time that a chamber piece of Arnold Schoenberg, the twelve stone, the, the twelve tone composer. The very first time that a piece of his was recorded that called for classical guitar, it was not possible for them to find a classical guitarist who could play the part. Wow. The man that they hired was guess what kind of musician? He was a professional. Um, what year was this? Oh gosh, I want to say. The 40s, 30s or 40s? Jazz? Yeah, he was a jazz guitarist. He was a monster, monster jazz guitarist. And the reason they hired him was because he could read the part. Yeah. They gave him the part. He said, sure, I can read it. And the classical people said, you want me to play what? Yeah. On a record mm. in two weeks for Schoenberg himself? And there was no, thank you. And they found a jazz man who could just do it. He And he... He played beautifully, and you know, I would say probably much to the surprise of some of the other musicians, but but they hired him because he could do it. He could play the notes, and the class, the quote-unquote classical guitarist of his era just couldn't do it. They couldn't hang. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's that's always spoken to me about the the sort of the edge of musicianship 
it seems to be that's where guitarists, especially the, the serious musicians such as yourself who play guitar, it seems that I don't have to – if I look at it from the standpoint of a band leader or a producer or a director or a rehearsal leader or whatever, I when I'm working with a great guitarist, I never find that I have to poke or prod or plead to get the person to come to the musical edge with me. The, the other man just always is, well, let's just go. He's just ready to show up. Whereas depending upon the the musical style that another, let's say, non-guitarist musician is acquainted with, generally speaking, it's going to sound like whatever kind of a musician he thinks of himself as. Whereas guitarists seem to be able to be the kind of musician that is needed in the moment. And it's just something about the guitar that has people show up very flexibly like that, whether you want to be an accompanist or you need to be a soloist or you want to be an accompanist and solo for yourself or play in a band or what have you. I, I just, I really like that about guitar. So thank you to you and the other guitarists of earth for, the, the, for showing up. The key distinction to me listening to what you were saying then was the, uh, the type of musician that he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. And right away there, my spidey sense uh, tingled. Um, because, yes. Because what that that's almost like observing ego. It's like you stepping outside yes. of yourself or, or thinking about the context of how you are going to be perceived. Um, mm-hmm. from, from what you're talking about, the let's go approach, it's more your musical instincts as opposed to the cerebral side of things in terms of um, how you're perceiving yourself as a musician. Mm. Yes, yes. Now, for example, probably if you listen to a jazz trumpet player, he's going to sound like a jazz trumpet player even if you hire him to play on a rock album. That's just what he does. And, you know, nothing against jazz trumpet players. I love jazz trumpet players. But it is a very, very, very rare trumpet player who can convincingly record, say, the classical repertoire, blues, R&B, and jazz all on the same horn, Mm -hmm. and every single time sounding authentically like that style. That's one of the reasons why someone like Wynton Marsalis on the trumpet is so... He's considered to be extraordinary, not only because he's a really fine classical trumpet player and an amazing jazz trumpet player, but because he's one of the very first people to have been recognized in each of those very sort of high-level worlds, classical trumpet playing, jazz trumpet playing at the highest level, as completely valid within each style without sounding in that style like, oh, he really comes from another he sounds like a classical trumpet player when he plays classical music. This reminds me of something where I I was I was able to recognize my own accomplishment as a singer years ago in music school and this was always my aspiration just intuitively was to do whatever of style whatever style of music I was doing in a way that was fully authentic. And I I remember I was I was practicing an aria in a rehearsal room at music school in California. And a friend of mine who was also a singer, she was a soprano. She had heard, I think from somebody that I also sang jazz and popular music and, and things other than opera. And she said, Oh, Nathaniel, no, there's no way you, you're, you're an opera singer. I mean, you sound like an opera singer completely. 
And I said, oh, really? You don't think I can sing other styles convincingly? So immediately, I don't know what I sang, whether it was a Broadway piece or or it was probably some jazzy or pop thing. And she was blown away. She said, oh, my goodness, you you don't sound like an opera singer when you sing that thing that isn't opera. And I said, yeah, that's the point. When I sing opera, I want you to think that I'm only ever singing opera. When I sing something that isn't opera, I don't want you to say, oh, he must be an opera singer. <laughs> because to me, that that defeats the purpose. I mean, with all love towards the great Luciano Pavarotti, whatever he did, he just really sounded like an opera singer. If he was singing pop, he didn't sound like he was singing pop. He just sounded like an opera singer forced into a pop song. And I, I never wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to sing to inhabit whatever musical landscape I was I was living inside of as fully and authentically as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was in a conversation with a student of mine yesterday and um I actually made the decision not to get too deep into studying jazz when I was in my teens because for me personally it started to interfere with my blues playing um and I started to phrase things slightly differently. Um, it was bringing mm-hmm. um, within me. I, I, I loved all the like the theory side of things and the the freedom and the ethos of jazz exploration, fusion, um, freedom. You know, um, sure. And so the idea of jazz, I absolutely love. And some of my favorite musicians to listen to um, growing up and, and still today. You know, John Coltrane. Uh, the Atlantic Years was one of the top three albums in, in my formative years of listening. Um, just a mm-hmm. fan. Didn't want to sound like him, but it spoke to me, just him as a person. Um, yes. You know? Yes. But I made... Coltrane for me too. For me too. Coltrane was a big influence for me. Huge, huge. And gets on a Sunday for me as well. And uh, <laughs> mm, Yes. You know? And um, But uh, I... For, for me personally, just let me let me know what you think. I'm, I'm absolutely interested um, to hear your take on this. But for me, I see like jazz as a separate branch on the tree of music, so to speak. Um, so for me, like there is blues, it, um, and may, as I said, you know, maybe this is just in, in the way that I process it. But like, I can play blues, I can play funk, um, I can play soul and or rock. Um, psychedelic, um, you know, like Eastern infused kind of sort of sitar type linear playing, and I still re- I still retain the authenticity, the purity of the style. Where yes, for me, when I go into jazz, I start to have a jazz infused element to all of those other styles. Ooh, so interesting, man! This is a. You've tapped into an inquiry that I have silently been inside of for for a long, long, long time. So, wow. Okay, this is a, this is a deep question. Like I said, you, you tapped into something I have been in. So, okay, so here's an interesting bifurcation. So I'm a singer and a pianist. By the time I was a teenager, I devoted myself much more seriously to my vocal studies than to my piano studies. So my piano playing to this day still functions primarily as an ability to accompany my voice students when they're taking lessons. Mm-hmm. I've also taught piano lessons and I've played as a solo pianist, but nowhere near the level of intensity that I've taken in my singing. So 
as a singer, I can hang in any level of jazz environment from the most advanced to the most rudimentary with, without any reservation. I can, I can totally hang as a pianist. Absolutely not. Would I be comfortable sitting in with say like a top level New York jazz band? Absolutely not. As a pianist, as a singer immediately, I can go on stage in 30 minutes if you need me to no problem at all. But to get that level of jazz chops as a pianist is just, it's a level of, of commitment that I simply never made. Mm-hmm. And so what your, your comments brought to mind a particular musician, which I'm sure you know of because as a guitarist, he's kind of a, a living legend of sorts. And that is the, the, the monster John McLaughlin. Oh yes. Okay. So, you know, of course, no, he can play pretty much anything that a guitar can do. However, as an example, as an instantiation of what you're talking about, no matter what style of music John purports to be playing, guess what? He still sounds like a jazz guitarist. Mm-hmm. And he could he could do funk or folk or blues or whatever, but it's still going to be so deeply baptized in that jazz vocabulary. Because yes, jazz is such a distinctive branch on the tree of music in that sense I feel like it's really become a form of art music. It has become a classical style, if you will. Mm-hmm. And for instance, if you sit down and play Mozart piano sonatas, it's going to need to sound like Mozart piano sonatas, or that isn't what it is. And I do think that jazz has that sensibility to it. So what I've done with jazz, kind of like you said about listening to Coltrane and others, and Coltrane was a huge hero for me, just Mont still is. He's still one of my guiding light examples of, of musicianship. In fact, right up there with Johann Sebastian Bach and St. John Kukuzelis, one of my all time favorite musicians of history. And although I do love the jazz that Coltrane did, and I in fact like doing jazz somewhat like Coltrane does, what I like even better is what Coltrane did later in his life when he was doing, are you familiar with his, a love Supreme record? Absolutely. So that's one of my favorites. And then beyond that, he does stuff that's so experimental, the very late Coltrane, that it really is not proper to even call it jazz. And there was, I forget the name of the record, but there was a record where what he did was he wrote a series of prayers to God with words completely by Coltrane. Was it Ascension? Words like, I don't remember the name of the record. The most challenging I've ever had in music was the Ascension album. That may have that may have been the one. I don't remember the title, but I remember what he did was he would write a poem to God, something like "I love you, God," or whatever the words were, and then on the saxophone, he would simply play the syllables as though the saxophone was a human voice, and then one could read the words off the liner notes, mm-hmm. and it was a deliberate, explicit musical prayer, and that is what I tapped into more than anything, more than even his virtuosity, more than the, you know, he practiced that of Slonimsky. So he was, he had a musical vocabulary that almost nobody has Mm -hmm. probably had in history in terms of the breadth of it. But it was his explicitly spiritual way of making music that I took from jazz more than anything else. So when I say I love jazz. Yes, I would enjoy working as a singer in a jazz idiom if it was a cutting-edge, high-level sort of jazz expression. But 
What I like about jazz even more is that it taught me to improvise and improvise well. And then musicians like Lenny Tristano, Coltrane, and others showed me that it's possible to improvise in a way that even leaves what it is to be jazz, leaving the paradigm, the paradigm of jazz behind and going to a place where it's just pure music, pure being, and dare I say, even a form of pure prayer. Mm-hmm. And that's now what I aspire to in all of my music making, whether it's pop or folk or funk or blues or jazz. And so for me, jazz was... It was as though I took a feeling from jazz, but to explicitly go and try to live inside of that style is something that I don't find to be always a resourceful approach, except sometimes. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's not being defined by the path you're taking up the mountain and to realize that it is, in a sense, it is a path. And there is a mountain. Yes. And once you get past a certain altitude, you then realize that the point of the journey was to get to beyond that time and space place where you just are. Yes. Yes. For me, now looking at it now from sort of my musicological or music theoretical analysis, here's what I say about jazz. What jazz really did was jazz took up the cause of tonal classical music when the people who we used to think it was their job to do tonal classical music fell down on the job and started just making noisy nonsense. That's basically what happened. So jazz is, it started out in the the lowest of the low parts of society. I mean, you know the word jazz and where it comes from, I suppose. I um, know what, what, what's the, uh, at the moment. <laughs> okay, well, we'll just we'll just we'll just be straight up historical right now, and, and not worry about uh, anyone clutching his or her pearls. So, if you're clutching your pearls right now, you may want to turn off this podcast. So, let's be really straight and historical here. So, jazz started in America, and it was played in brothels, and a a lowbrow term for a man's ejaculation is jism, and jazz is simply a word that was a, it was a twist on the word jism so jism music jazz that's where the word jazz came from that's where jazz comes from jazz was music men played on pianos to entertain the customers waiting to go have sex with a prostitute so that's where jazz came from let's so you know, people, not, people think it's highbrow it's actually slightly higher up in a uh, there's something about mary type way <laughs> well well said yes exactly and now, of course, fast forward to 1932, and we have the Benny Goodman Orchestra on stage at Carnegie Hall. So all of a sudden, early 1930s, jazz now gets catapulted to the stage of Carnegie Hall, which means it is beginning to be respectable concert music. But that was never where it came from. And I think one of the most important, if not, and I I almost don't want to say this, but I just think it's true, so I'm going to. Probably the most important jazz musician of all is Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. Because Miles showed that jazz is meant to be constantly renewed. And so over the course of Miles' life, he participated in, I don't know, three or four or five different renewals of what jazz was, of what music was, always touching into whatever was the cutting edge thing, whether that was electronics or rock or or bebop back in the day. He was right there in the thick of it when that was the new thing. And it was this freshness, this awareness of the moment, which I think was what jazz 
had to offer, and it was this way of bridging. If I may be so bold as to say, I feel like jazz could bridge the sacred and the profane. Mm -hmm. But my fear is that what's happened in jazz, say, post, especially post the 1980s in many cases, is that they forgot, dare I say, the profane part of that equation. Yeah. They forgot the lowbrow. They forgot the the working man who needs to relax and chill out after a hard day of swinging a hammer or God knows what else, yeah. digging ditches or what have you. And I feel like it was almost as though the jazz musicians left their original environment behind. Now, that's not to say that all of them lost their souls. I think there there is all there always have been and always will be deeply soulful jazz musicians. But of course, then there's this question of what is it to make high art? What is it to make folk art? What is it to make pop art? What is it to be a sort of a universally appealing musician? This is a it's a deep question, and jazz raises all of these raises all these questions inside of its history. Well, I, I mean, as ever, when you speak, my friend, there's so many things uh, come to mind. I can't think of anybody else, not to say there isn't anybody else, but I can't think of anybody else that could have um, hung with the uh, lineup of the Isle of Wight Festival 1970 like Miles did. Indeed. Mm, I mean, that, indeed, a lot of people w maybe would uh, pick Woodstock as their time travel gig to go back to, but for me, Isle of Wight. 1970. Mm. Hendrix, Dawes, James Taylor. Just man, I'm with I'm with you there. What? A key, just imagine that. Just those three: Hendrix, The Doors, and James Taylor. Now today, I don't know that all those people would have even been able to be played on the same radio station. No, no. It just it wouldn't be allowed. No. It's interesting what you say about the profane as well. Um, if I use the word. Um, say eroticism or, or or sexuality for me it's one of the things that i grew up as a huge prince fan um mm -hmm. just before purple rain so it was my kind of era to be you know with me growing up in the 80s james brown for example um if i'd have grown up in the 60s or the 70s he'd have his his music would have had that fire yes that we we know yes. 80s living in america james he, he, to me <laughs> to me I, I heard his older stuff but you know when i saw him in like rocky four was it um the ill-fitting blue jumpsuit i'm like oh yeah i'm not really you don't feel part of my cultural sort of journey here <laughs> um, but, but but prince um was that for me however i lost touch when he uh, when, when the passion and the sexuality side of things, he lost it. When, when for him, religion equated losing the um, the erotic. You know, he did songs like Erotic City and Do Me, Do Me Baby and Darling Nikki and all this kind of thing. And mm -hmm. when he sort of banished that side from him, then the music became somewhat a bit more elevator to me. Um, you know, I think it... The, the, the passion, the dark and the light, you know, as the Native Americans say, like the feeding of the two wolves kind of thing, or yin-yang. It's like we're, we live in a duality world, world, and I don't Oh, the shadow self is another, you know, concept that comes to mind. There's nothing for me wrong with exorcising that shadow self within your playing and converting it, transmuting it into a thing of beauty. Now, this for me is really what blues and jazz mm -hmm. 
if I can be so bold as to put those things just in a word together, that's what especially the blues is all about. Yeah. And I love the blues. The blues for me is, and of course, as you know, there is no one on earth that can call himself a jazz musician without being able to play the blues. Mm -hmm. It isn't allowed. It is not permitted. It is not tolerated. There's no such thing. I don't think there's any musicians that have got passion that can't, that couldn't play, um, you know, at least get up and play at a jam night and play a blues. Yeah. Well, it would be the same thing in rock and roll, right? If I mean, because any of those standard '50s rock songs, which basically anyone who's going to play rock and roll has to cut his teeth on, mm -hmm. they're all twelve-bar blues numbers. Absolutely. So this is something so fundamental. And when I play the blues, I immediately connect with Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. Immediately, if I just think, are you familiar at all, just off the top of your head, with the Well-Tempered Clavier Volume One? Uh, possibly. I've, I've, I studied Bach in my teens, um, but I, uh, I remember a few names. I don't remember them. Well, I'm going to be so bold as to dare to vocalize a little bit of the the C minor prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier Volume 1, so bear with me. So it's something... In other words, he goes through something like a one, four, five, seven little bluesy gesture just to get going. And as soon as I looked at that, I realized, oh my goodness, the only music that I know of when I was learning that C minor prelude as a teenager that was a relevant corollary was popular music, blues, and jazz. In other words, there wasn't any other classical music that I knew of or was playing at that time that moved and thought so clearly in terms of like iterated jam out like Hendrix or Coltrane-esque. Let's just lay out a chord. For example, you know Coltrane's Mr. PC? Yeah. And then if you go to Bach, all of a sudden, oh my goodness. Coltrane and Bach occur to have way more in common with each other than a lot of the music that was contemporary to Bach and to, to a lot of the music that was contemporary to Coltrane. And I realized there was a way of thinking about music. This is where Glenn Gould is one of my main, one of my main men, one of my mainstays. There's a way of thinking about music in terms of pure structure or pure love or the way that music iterates right out of the physics of sound, right out of the partial series itself. And that's the way that the men whose music I love and respect the most tends to live and move and have its being. It's a music that just comes right out of the stuff of sound, the sonic material, which is simply the way that this universe vibrates, you know, going back to the partial series and, you know, Pythagorean, Absolutely. Sort of understanding theory. And and that was always where my heart was because that na 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 that kind of an interval, which every kid has made on a playground in every culture all over the world for as long as we have recorded history, they're just grabbing 
two notes of the Portugal series right out of the air because everybody can hear them. And from thence you get blue notes, from thence you get the dissonances in Bach, from thence you get the the modes of, of the church, whether you call it Old Roman chant or Byzantine chant or whatever, all of those ancient church modes. And then you can look at Indian classical music. It's another derivation of that that set. And so this was kind of the way of making music. It was like the way that Newton describes science, thinking God's thoughts after him. It's kind of the way that I think about music. Okay, here's what's here. My voice is here. And, you know, they, they, they set me down at a piano from when I was pretty little. So that was also, that's what's here. Mm. But then there was, the more I got into it, just the stuff of sound and being with that sort of in a hip way. That's kind of the, the approach to music making that's just always rung true for me, whether it was Bach or Coltrane or the blues. Mm. Yeah, there's um, there's some studying of um, the theoretical side of things that I've done of uh, of Coltrane, and at a similar time, I was kind of studying a bit of, um, of Plato as well, and mm-hmm. interest in the ancient Greek way of the the complementary study of philosophy, mathematics, music, science. Yes, you know. It, yes, that was the way they thought. Absolutely, sound. You know the mathematics of music. You know it was like all of these things. I mean, I don't. I don't know how separate they actually saw them. To to me, it seems it seems that they were very very interconnected in terms very of study. Much. I mean, we know obviously that it's uh, inseparable in terms of reality. Yes, but I think for, for me with, with Coltrane, with that level that he went into, it was almost like this modern equivalent of that sort of mystery school teachings that he went into that 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 spiritual journey that ultimately uh, mm. consciousness takes these illusory separate things and sees them for the just the, the the one that they are boy that's that really that that brings something full circle for me because i've been contemplating that for some years now specifically what you're talking about how the ancient greeks like plato and that era of thought, Pythagoras would be a major exponent of that era, yep. wherein, like you said, mathematics, magic, music, rhetoric, grammar, logic, all of these things were considered aspects of an interconnected whole of the basics of learning, which was understood by the ancients to be the formation of the soul. Whereas, and in fact, Skill acquisition was deliberately considered to be a second-rate approach to education, which by the ancients, generally speaking, was reserved to slaves. For example, medicine was considered a clever skill set, which a slave could be taught. But deep education, that was the grammar, rhetoric, logic, mathematics, music, this approach, because they believed that the true education, the most important aspects of education, were to form, to attune, to develop the soul or the powers of a human being, which include the physical, but are also beyond it. And for me, that was always, it just always felt like that was the real point of music. I remember when I was a little kid listening to the records that my grandmother would play, whether they would be, say, the Robert Shaw Chorale or the New York Philharmonic playing Beethoven's Ninth or Beethoven's Fifth or... Frank Sinatra or the Kingston Trio. She had very good taste in music, whether it was folk or 
jazz or classical or whatever it might have been. And all of these different styles that she was playing on her record player, big record player, I remember as a little child, they would very much, if you will, trance me out. I was just, I was just catapulted to another world by these sounds and sets of sounds. There was something that was happening in my soul spiritually that felt like it was more or less all that I ever wanted to do. It was just that it seemed like the best thing ever or the only thing that made sense to do with myself. Yeah. <laughs> Other than explicitly spiritual and philosophical pursuits, music was the and and now later in life I've been called to write and specifically to write fiction, God help me, and that's something that I had as a calling later, but early, early, early from childhood, it was just the the sensation of being drawn into these various musical realms. It called to me on the inside of my being in a way that simply nothing else could or did. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious out of that, Tim, how did you get pulled into the life of a musician? Love of music. Um, it chose, you know, the, uh, when you hear the phrase, it chose you. Yes. Um, and so ear- earliest memories, um, grandmother, um, Sundays, Sunday afternoons, we'd go and visit her old record player. <laughs> it's funny, yes. we never discussed this. Um, uh, old record player, you know, the, the, the type that was from kind of like the 50s where it was also an item of furniture as well. Oh, yes. Yes, I do remember those. Absolutely. Beautiful wooden cabinet with a yes. storage area. And and to me, it was a work of art and I was just transfixed by it. Um, yes. And also because of the area that she came from, um, they, the the room at the front of their the house they had a, what's called a, a, like a semi detached like a, a kitchen and, and two big rooms downstairs kind of set uh, set up and yes the front room was the entertainment room so that was there were chairs in there and a table uh, that was were pulled out if they were going to play cards with friends that would come over card games and sure. fun but for the most part all the chairs were pushed to the outside of the room. And it was a dancing area and a celebration area. Looking back and singing and dancing, um, the, the there weren't any musical instruments, but there was music as such a major um, factor to it. And yes. that, that imprint that that made as well. The the main two areas that she would love listening to were old seventy eights. So she she loved to dance, and so it was like early Elvis. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that rock and roll, but on, on 78 as well. And for me to just actually feel those 78s and the density of, of how they were pressed as well. Uh, yes. And artwork as well. You know, it's one of the things I know it's, uh, it's, it's something that I lament the passing of, not the passing of, but in terms of the focus of. Um, I know there are generations that are getting back into to vinyl. Um, but the art, the, the visual artistic side of things that has, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I bought, just to digress slightly, but when I first bought Sgt. Pepper as a kid and I opened the gatefold and saw the Beatles there, so this was 24 inches by 12. This is, a, this is right. a, you know, and the impact that that had on me, for example, visually. So it, it's, it's like it kind of helps to develop a form of like this um, – this oh, yes. little audio, like a kind of like synesthesia type thing going on, whereby I, I would see the person singing the song kind of thing because I had that visual representation from the artwork. 
Where, yes. Whereas if you're on your, you know, your iPhone um, and and you're listening to Apple Music Tidal or whatever, um, not that I don't do that, but if that's what you know and you've just got this artwork that's slightly bigger than a postage stamp, you're not going to have that same imprint. You know? So true. So true. So I was born in 1978, just to give some historical perspective. And so when I was born, of course, LPs were the thing still. But then I do remember growing up in the 80s, I remember how quickly that transition to audio tapes, you know, and cassettes are so small. Yeah. So I remember my father's record collection and my grandmother's record collection, and both of them had legitimate proper record collections, like, you know, stacks of LPs, well cared for, clean, proper turntables, you know, the needles and all that stuff. It was like the average person, the average man or woman in his home or her home who wished to listen to music had to have a little bit of the skill set which we now reserve to audio engineers, which is to say just keeping a record clean, mm-hmm. making sure the needle dropped to where it should, making sure the records don't get overly grooved, all of those things. And, and also EQ. All, all the yes. came. Some came with a parametric EQ. Some came. Yes. The, the first time as a child that I saw treble clef and bass clef were, yes. were actually on uh, the amplifier of a stereo. And I saw these symbols and I'm like, what are these symbols? Because it didn't have the word. It just had the symbol. Beautiful. Now, con- Beautiful. considering this was just a generic brand uh, stereo, you know, um, this it, it, it was nothing uh, industry-wise. And, and so, yes. that, but that was part of um, the, the popular knowledge that that meant treble and that meant bass, and it matters. Yes, indeed. My goodness, and that that sense of music and the magic of that whole world. Like I remember looking at my father's record collection, and I can still see in my mind's eye some of the album covers, mm. and. I, I remember looking at the same thing with my grandmother's collection, which had a lot of classical records and also the big pop singers like Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, others of that era and seeing the singers faces. Like I can still see an album cover in the wooden cabinet in my grandmother's home next to the record player. I can still see Perry Como's face, the way that the artist probably painted his face from a photograph Or he may have actually sat for a portrait, but the whole thing, I can see the Kingston Trio, I can see their record, I can see the way they sat for that portrait. And, you know, it says they were uh, an act that premiered at the Hungry Eye Club in San Francisco, a club which I I later visited, only to be disappointed that it had become a strip club, used to be a serious music venue. Yeah, And that whole era had a, there was an aestheticism that was still pretty high well into the commercialization. That is to say, you know, sell huge amounts of records all over the world. It's very much a commercial form, Mm -hmm. but the level of aesthetics was still quite high. And there was something about that aesthetic or set of aesthetic norms that was just incredibly important. It felt like it was, it was very much harmonious with my soul. It was just something that I intuitively understood. And to have that artwork or that aesthetic sensibility be dropping away in favor of a purely digital world, it definitely feels as though something has been lost. Mm. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Just to loop back um, and connect the, a few things together, uh, you we were saying about how I got into being a musician, and we, we both talked yes. about the, the influence of, of our grandparents and, and so on. Um, just what, just one thing that uh, occurred to me then as well was all of the, the, the music uh, that she was playing, the vast majority of it. I said there were two different um, main styles that she liked, and one of it was rock and roll. The other was the swing era. Yes, but with all of the rock and roll that she was playing, it was all guitar-led or guitar-driven. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, even the later Beatles stuff that she was playing, that got me into, I want, I love this so much that I want to take part in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that was, mm-hmm. that was the leap into it. Um, then I started to get... Um, uh, I, I start, actually started on recorder when I was seven just because that was offered. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But it got me learning music. I went through um, uh, the descant and um, uh, treble and uh, bass. So I love that. I did like different clefs, which was cool. Um, and then strumming on a tennis racket, <laughs> pulse was was uh, was was there. Um, but yeah, I started teaching when I was uh, fifteen. So wow. teaching while not at school, but teaching while I was at school. Uh, yes, and so. The idea of being a musician um, wasn't something that I had to step into. It, it, it was the transition from me like listening to the music to joining in, playing, sat on my bed, first learning, playing, um, to showing other people what I was doing, to playing with other people. It would just became part of this very organic journey, and and you know, I, I, I guess at one point I just sat down and thought, yeah, I suppose I'm a musician. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. You know, but it was out, out yeah. of uh, out, out of uh, out of love on it. But there was um, my da- my dad had this idea that, and and you know, I know he was doing the best that he could within the resources of that time, because uh, there weren't any popular music degree courses or at universities or anything like that. Um, sure, at that time. So um, it made me smile when you were saying about the, uh, you know, your relationship initially with classical lessons because I too went through that journey uh, yes. as well. And he's like, you know, you'll thank me one day. And, uh, and I did, and I did. Um, but it's, it's interesting as well with the, um, with the classical side of things. And, you, you know, we were talking about the influence of the connection between jazz and classical and the influence of jazz on other styles in terms of the purity or, or the performance of, uh, of other yes. styles. Um, it just occurred to me, though, for me, classical never had that uh, that conflict um, because certainly on the guitar, um, with it being a string instrument, there are going to be certain differences. Uh, for, for example, um, with vibrato. So when, when you actually um, vibrate the string, within classical, um, you are going to be moving your hand from left to right, so sideways vibrato, whereas on the guitar, which is more of a blues thing, you would actually um, get the string and move it up and down. Shall I, shall I pick up my guitar and just show you? Yeah, please. I'd love to hear. Absolutely. Pull that in a bit. Um, okay. I'll just dial up a quieter sound there. Um, it's funny, actually. I just pressed my uh, effects unit and uh, a preset called Jazz Clean came up. I think my... Nice. I think it's been listening to me. Um, oh, great. So, yeah, a, a classical vibrato would be like side to side, more like a... Yes, yes. Whereas a blues vibrato would be more up and down like this. Right. Because 
it was less, and I'm just thinking about this as, as we're talking, the vibrato and a lot of other techniques in classical weren't quite as um, prevalent within the music. So a vibrato from side to side, like the, then it, it wasn't about that, that kind of raw expression, was it, classical? Uh, yes. If you know what I mean, as opposed to blues. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if I play a blues lick like I was playing classical... It's nice, but if I play it like I'm playing blue, right, right away, right. you've got that attack, haven't you? You know, yes, it's completely different. And also, one of the things um, with uh, classical compared to say blues um, is that within classical, there aren't any string bends. I remember the first time I did a, a string bend uh, at a classical lesson, and the guitar and the teacher looked at me. And he's like, what are you doing? And it's like, well, there was a lick that, and I'll change, I'll change sound just for a bit of a variety, but a simple melody, which was maybe, and I actually played it. <laughs> Imagine what that went down at a classical lesson. I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, the film from the mid eighties, Crossroads with uh, Ralph Macchio in. Um, I never saw that. No, I didn't. It was essentially my story, but um, from that aspect, anyway, the, the the kid who has classical lessons, but then gets into blues and starts phrasing things, and his teacher goes, "What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a bit of Robert Johnson mythology mixed in after that, which I didn't experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it just occurred to me why the the classical lessons that I had didn't have that um, that that crossover kind of influence. It was, it was just so different. It, the it was almost as if the the guitar as a visual component was the main um, uh, consistency between the two. It, the the actual way of playing stylistically, it couldn't be more different. Boy, is that ever true? And the thing you said about bending notes reminds me of the blues. I was reflecting on one of the musicians who influenced me most when I was a teenager. I had a friend named David who was also a pianist and a keyboardist. And I would go over to his house because, well, his parents had considerably more money than we did. And so he had a lot more music equipment. So not just a piano and a very good one, but also keyboards and a whole studio full of all kinds of gear. So it was really fun because I could go over there and we could jam together as two keyboard players. But his father was a virtuoso guitarist who was one of the most exceptional blues musicians that I had ever met in my entire life. He was a a real monster rock and blues player. He could also play folk beautifully on an acoustic guitar, just like a god. But when he was playing blues, especially on an electric, like on a Stratocaster, it was some of the most tremendous music making that I had ever heard played live by any musician at that point in my life. And he's still one of the major musical influences for me because of that. Mm. And he, he told me something, which was that the blues isn't really saying anything until one bends the notes. Yeah, That's when it starts to speak. And I got something out of that, which was far deeper than just here's how to play blues. What I got out of that was there was an essence of music itself, which blues taps into by bending notes. I now have a much deeper sense of what that was about. But for me, that blues sensibility is something I have never been able to get away from the importance of. And a little bit like jazz is for me, 
blues for me is almost more of an inspiration or more of a feeling mm -hmm. than even the style of blues. When I say blues, I don't just mean that I want to, you know, listen to BB King all day. I would find that a little bit too much like watching paint dry, to be honest. Yeah. But the feeling, the spirit of blues, the expressivity, the ability to transmute the emotions of wow, failure, this didn't work, pain, heartbreak, sorrow, sadness, into something beautiful, into something worthy of sharing with others, and even into something comforting and uplifting and soulful. To me, that was part of the, the magic of what made music worth playing and even life worth living, yeah. in fact. I think I love that comment about the uh, string bend. And to me, it's like if you... Just, uh, you know, even as non-musicians, if you've had that kind of day where at the end of the day you go, ah, well, that is basically starting off by bending a note and letting it fall. Ah. Exactly. So there's something that speaks to the the cathartic um, and, and the cathartic aspect of blues. There, there's also... Um, Sometimes we listen to music to elevate us from how we're feeling. And sometimes we just want something that resonates with where we're at. So we have company with what we're feeling, you know? Yes. If we've lost yes. close to us, we maybe don't want to be listening to Oh Happy Day. Um, we maybe want to listen to something that actually does bring a tear to our eye because it resonates with us where we're at. So that within music, it is our friend and it's at that same emotional level that we're at. So we are not alone within that feeling, you know? Correct. Uh, that is what has been called a homeopathic use of music hmm. where the same is treated with the same. So whether it's a frenetic emotion treated with a frenetic, a musical expression, or like you said, it's something sorrowful met with a sorrowful piece of music. It's this tremendous way in which the soul does have, like you said, a cathartic experience, that inner cleansing quality by being met with itself mm. as, as though the music becomes a mirror. Absolutely. Uh, as, as speaking of which, would, I have an idea. Let's try something musically here, if you're up for it. Of so let's say we do something in the spirit of trading force. Obviously, we don't have a band over here keeping the rhythm. And because of our being in two different studios, it may be a little more freeform than if we were playing in exactly the same space. But what if I do something for, let's say, four-ish bars or however long, and then you do something, and we'll just we'll have a little bit of a musical conversation until it until it sort of resolves. Fantastic. I uh, all right. I uh, my first uh, my f my first blues gig, my second gig ever, actually was seeing BB King. And um, wow, eighty-five around there. Oh man! And I totally get what you mean. There's there's a, a finite kind of point with me listening to to, to BB. I'll do you. I'll actually play you my impression of BB now. Love that. Okay, so my impression of BB is, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeling. He might go. <laughs> yep, absolutely. That's right. And the guitar's name is Lucille, I believe. Indeed. After That's... yeah, after a lady that he uh, rescued from a fire. So the oh wow, wow. 
And yet at the same time with, you know, giving credit where credit is due, every single time he would play those licks, it did feel to me like he was telling the truth as he saw it or as best he could. Well, that truth, um, absolutely. So it's the nearest thing I've seen at a music concert to the crowd having a religious experience. Wow. 50% literally of the gig was spent with him. It was at a theatre um, and there were people queuing up um, down the aisle at the, uh, well, down both aisles actually, uh, and just to kiss BB's hand. Oh, wow. And wow. So it was a mix. It was this pilgrimage that people were taking. And I've never seen anything that even approaches that since. And I was um, sat up in the balcony so I could see this quite clearly. And I'm looking Mm. down and I'm like, well, you know, I know it's, I've not been to many gigs at this point, but Springsteen wasn't, (laughs) Springsteen wasn't like this. No. Yeah. Springsteen is not going to wait for everybody to come kiss his hands. That is, (laughs) he's a good musician, but he's not going to do that. He does long sets, but no, not that long. Wow. Yeah, that was something about BB, man. He seemed to, he was, he never, at least in my impression of him, he never left that sense of himself as simply one of the people, a man of the people, a part of the people. Mm -hmm. And that was so, it was so clear in every note. I remember that he once said that he was really quite surprised when he started figuring out how many musicians listened to him, because he always thought that his music would not be music that musicians would listen to. He was just hoping the general public would like it. And he was just so flattered that so many guitarists especially listened to him. But I thought, wow, what a humble man to have accomplished as much as he did in that style. The the lesson to me from BB is tone. Mm. So yes. Even though I playfully did that one note thing and, you know, did the uh, the kind of thing. Um, yes. How many guitar players can play one note and you know it's them? <laughs> That's true. That is true. Even though, and that- even though I'm doing it playfully, it's like, yeah, I, it takes me more than one note for people to know it's me. Yeah, it's something else, isn't it? That's really one of those things that – is such a rare hallmark of the artist at the highest level where with someone like, like a Miles Davis or a Coltrane, I mean, goodness, do you, I mean, maybe two notes and you know, it's trained with, with Coltrane, the same thing, probably just one note. Okay. That's definitely John Coltrane. There's nobody else yourself like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just his, um, thing. his alto playing, I think one note and I'd get who it was. Mm, yes. Yes, indeed. He was a special virtuoso. Coltrane is somebody I still, I still reflect on him as an example of where the musicianship seems to, very much in the sense like Johann Sebastian Bach, no matter where I take the measurement of a Coltrane, I find nothing but musical integrity all the way down. Mm. Whether it's his tone or his choice of notes or the repertoire he was playing or if I try to figure out what was the motivation for that he put the song together, like I just find deeper and deeper elements of integrity and commitment to his art, like a martyric, like a dying for it type commitment. Mm. And that was always the kind of music making that inspired me was I, I was left with the sense of that man would very gladly live and die for every note that he played today. Yeah. That was, that was it for him. He left it all there. Yeah. So uh, as we, in that spirit sort of, I will, 
uh, start up something and then I'll fall silent as I pass it over to you. So it'll be a, a trading force without the band keeping going. And if it's, you know, if it's measured and we have time, that's cool. If it's rubato, that's cool. If we do whatever, if you use one sound, if you use another, we'll just, we'll just flow with it. Shall we? Absolutely. All right.
Nice, man. Fantastic. Now I'm thinking of a, <laughs> a little getaway to the north of England so as to be able to jam with you <laughs> in real time. Absolutely. Technology from Manchester to Greece and back. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, it does make me think about this world of, of online collaboration, and I have been wanting to explore that. I'm curious. Tell me about something. This is a, a sort of a technological inquiry, which is now, I guess, more or less forced upon us with so many of us having travel restrictions in place. But being an experienced electronic musician yourself, what kind of experiences have you had with doing collaborations with artists or one other artist or however many of them, where you and the, the others are none of you in the same place? Um, I'm not collaborating with anybody in the same country at the moment. So you have had some pretty, you've had some good fertile musical experiences where you have people from, from miles and miles away yeah, and you I manage mean, to. Now, uh, if they're not in the same room, it doesn't matter what country they're in. Yeah. I mean, it's a really special time to be able to do that uh, for myself because I just grew up in such a, I was, you know, playing an acoustic instrument at the piano. And then the other form of music making, which I did even before that, and which continued very rigorously for many, many years in my life, was being in a choir, which again is yeah, a, a literal finite number of people in the same room all singing together. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was just the way that I came into music making. And although as a teacher now for, for well over a decade, I have been teaching, sometimes even primarily teaching online. But I would like to get more into the world of collaboration, whether recording or, or however other, however many ways there are to do it now with people who are like yourself in, in a different country. Yeah, And I'm just I, curious how that's been for you. On the technological side of things, for example, I, I, a few years ago I was trying uh, Pro Tools that had this virtual online collaboration kind of cloud function and it was just it was a really nice idea but it was for me personally it was it, it, it wasn't there yet um the idea that i thought it was that we could be basically sharing the same um window the pro same project window uh but it was to, to me what i basically do is I, it's just like a game of tennis creative collaborative tennis so um 
because I'm a multi instrumentalist, it de- right. It depends who I'm working with as to what the um, the, the setup is um, creatively. So a lot of the time, I work with vocalists in different styles. Um, sure. So um, on on YouTube, if anyone wants to listen, my there's a, a channel which is uh, Soul Purpose Production, and that's just that's got like some world music on there, some hip hop, reggae, soul. Um, R&B kind of stuff that I've done. So apart from the vocals, uh, then I'm the... By the way, for, for anybody listening real quick, there will be links to what Tim just described to that YouTube channel and anything else that you want to share. There will be links to that in the description of this podcast. So, But continue, Tim. Yeah, right. Um, so... So with all of those, um, I'm I'm the band, which I didn't set out to be. Again, just that impetus of, of love for music. Um, so I, I got into using a four track back in the day on cassette, and mm-hmm. having these con- having these con- um, creative constraints was uh, a great uh, boot camp. So if you only have four tracks that you can use to record, then you yes. have to, a you have to make decisions, which is empowering. Uh, again, leads to present moment uh, focus. Yes. You know, we can't make a decision five minutes in the past or five minutes in the future. As uh, We have to be present and fully switched on with our, our focus and attention to make those kind of um, potentially song-changing decisions. It's like, do we do we bounce down our, our, these three tracks onto this fourth one? Well, that's it. We've, we've basically now that's set in stone, that guitar part, that drum part that you just did. So make a decision. I'm not into this fixing it in the mix later kind of thing, which is part of my the evolution of my own journey and where technology is. Oh, through. man, I'm with you right there. You're singing my song. I'm not into that well, fix it later in the mix either. I don't like that. Creatively, you're also, if, you, if you're going to fix things in the mix, then what are you actually like writing with? <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's like, why, why, don't, why don't you actually, I mean, people say, I don't, I mix as I go along as I create. Now, if you're, in, if you're mixing another artist, it's different. But if, you, if you're a creative yourself and you're just multi-laying all the different instruments, then just get, you want it to sound as good as it can in that moment to keep your intention yes. going. So this whole idea That's of, right. of this mix thing being some future event, I don't get it at all. Um, don't like that at all either. I think it's a, unfortunately a very similar thing has happened in movies. There's this idea. It's like the ubiquitous. We'll just fix it in post, you know, fix it in post-production. I don't like that. Whereas if you take the sensibility of a director like a Hitchcock, no, Hitchcock wants what the actors are doing right now, what the cap, what the camera is capturing substantially to be what the audience sees. Did you hear that story about Hitchcock having two versions of every script? No, no, tell me. Um, so the first one was just the standard version. The second one would be his own handwritten notes, writing after each part of the dialogue what the emotional purpose was of that particular wow. dialogue. Wow. The wow. And um, one of the sound healing, um, uh, Jonathan Goldman's sound healing um, equations, formulas that he came out with was uh, intention plus vibration equals healing. Yes, I found that to be the... Uh, now, this is an interesting segue right into sound healing, something that that you say you do and I also say I do. So I love that little formula because it's not the easiest thing to describe. So say it again. The formula so, is... So in, intention plus vibration equals healing. And mm-hmm. apply that to the blues. You know, the intent behind it is the, is the passion and the emotion, the catharsis that's going into it. And, yes. And the vibration... 
well, there, as you as you and I know, it's like there are certain scales that will go like your minor pentatonic, major pentatonic, blues, added blues notes, and so on. Um, yes, less is more within blues. And if you wanted to use like a, you know, if you wanted to use like a, an aeolian mode or like a natural minor mode, it's too much information to have like the, the you know the the minor six in there and the uh, the minor se- uh, the major second in there. It's it, a lot of the time it's just too much information. You know? Yes. So the specific frequencies. I, I I also think that we all, in my own experience, I think it's a we are all unique vibrational beings. I think there are aspects to us, uh, like a, a healthy balanced chakra will have a specific frequency. Um, however, just like with um, you know within Ayurveda, within doshas, um, there there are some some people, for example, would taste orange juice and they would think it's the most amazing thing ever. Other people would find it too sour and come out in a rash. Uh, yes, and it's the same thing with frequencies. Some people, I know, some people who chill out to techno. Sure, you know, oh sure, them and their own, like the the relative vibrational rate. That to them, they just go, ah, I can trance out and lose myself in this. Whereas other people, it would it would agitate them. So we are unique beings, um, you know, within our the, what what vibrations do to us. Um, but in terms of healing. I think it's the difference as well I've seen between music therapy and sound healing. You know, sound healing is is kind of more scientific, uh, frequency based. A lot of uh, getting back to Plato again with the the four three two, um, uh, and from and like the uh, the the therapy side of things is is more interactive and emotive, expressive. You know, I, I used to uh, I did some sound uh, uh, music therapy uh, within uh, some uh, some psych wards years ago. And, yes. and essentially what I did was I just sat and played my guitar and brought a lot of percussive instruments in. And instead, mm. instead of handing them to people, I just put them in the middle of us. Mm. And people, one by one, fast forward 30 minutes and everyone's playing them because the vibration of the room, you know, the emotional sort of over, overall feeling of the room had changed so that people yes. felt safe in doing that and inspired to do that. And that's the healing part for me within, that's one of the differences. Whereas for me, sound healing would more be, um, I use a lot of tuning forks. Um, I actually just got a, uh, a new set um, of, of uh, Pythagorean um, sacred geometry ones. Would you like to hear them? I'd be delighted. Yes. Ah, beautiful sound. Just listen to how long these last as well. Wow. Still going. Yeah, this is like the spinal tap of tuning forks. Very nice. Yeah, about a minute. Anyway, mm. it reminds you know what that reminds me of is when I was growing up, I played handbells, English handbells, mm. which were created so that they were created a long, long, long time ago, so that bell peals, which of course, if they're going to be played in a bell tower at full volume, can be heard for miles around, so that bell peals could be practiced at a volume that wouldn't wake up or annoy the townspeople. Mm. And that developed then all the way into the 20th century as an orchestral percussion instrument, which then became something that could be played in its own choir. So I was in a number of of pretty good handbell choirs as a younger person. 
And and the sound is actually quite similar to the tuning fork you just whacked. There's a a very, very long decay. And a really good set of English handbells can be five or even six or sometimes more octaves. They can be really wide ranging and yet beautiful, beautiful, long, long ringing. And of course they can be created to any tonal system one desires. They can be custom forged. And But having that instrument in my hand, that piece of metal, very carefully forged and polished brass ring, like, and then they're damped against the chest, generally speaking. So that means literally right up against the heart center. Mm. And what a wonderful experience that was. And the legato with an English handbill is done by the arc of one's arm away from the body and then back towards the body in a slow circle, depending on how long the note is. So it was this wonderful involvement of the body and the movement of the body. And then there are percussive techniques that can be done against the hand, against the chest, even against the knee. There are all different kinds of things that can be done to get the body involved. But although this wasn't explicitly a form of music therapy, when I was doing it, it was just a way to do beautiful music and it's a sort of innovative or, or maybe novel genre. But it was, as I now reflect back upon it, very much a therapeutic experience. And then I think it was maybe my early 20s when I realized that my calling as a healer, which I somehow knew about intuitively since I was a much younger person, I knew that if I wasn't a professional musician, I probably would have been a physician because health and wellness has always been a major, major calling of mine ever since I was a teenager or younger. Mm. And then I realized that my therapeutic vehicle in this life is as a musician, not because music is merely or only therapy, but because it is one of the most powerful forms of therapy available. And that's now a way that I, I really view any and all music, in, in addition to other things that music is. It is profoundly therapeutic. Mm. Well, it's another. Um, I look, I look, obviously, I look forward to speaking to you uh, to to again. Um, it, we, that's another chat in itself. Because um, when I uh, went to to college, I was offered a lot of different uh, places at musical colleges because of my grades at, uh, at mm-hmm. early music. But I turned them all down because I, I wanted to re- remain free from um they were all classical places essentially so that goes back to our earlier conversation um yes yes whereby i i know i was saying about classical playing on the guitar being different however i didn't want to be indoctrinated through that particular learning school system i wanted to remain uh, and you know someone who innovates as opposed to imitates which is what they were going to teach me to do uh, yes I, I knew that i wanted to create and be free within my own expression as opposed to being taught to recite other people's you know, um, so even though I wasn't writing at that point, um, I certainly had that impulse. Um, so when I went to college, it was actually for uh, psychology, sociology. Um, oh, interesting. So, um, yeah, and my dad was um, uh, an NLP, a neurolinguistic programming trainer and hypnotherapist and so on. So I grew up oh, you, that. Did you say your, your father was an NLP hypnotist and trainer? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting because... That that's got to go back to early days, then, if that's what your father did. Absolutely. I mean, we'd we'd have lots of conversations that I didn't even know that, that he was teaching me NLP. So I believe it. So uh, that's amazing. Who did your father study with? Because that's got to go back to the days of Bandler and Grinder yeah, themselves. Yeah, he did. He studied with them, Dilts, um, 
Dilt's Bandler, Grinder. Uh, no, I think just Bandler, actually. I think they'd broken up by now. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've got his old uh, cassettes, Tad James. Um, lecture wow. from, from from him, from seminars. And if- you know, I never I never went to visit Grinder or Bandler, but they are from where I am from. Like one of them lived in San Francisco, the other one lived literally up the road from me in Santa Cruz, and I knew about them for years. Right. And when I lived in California, where I'm from, I never made the point of going to visit either of those gentlemen. And then John Grinder died, and then of course, you know, but I, I should have visited them in person while I could have. The uh, it was it Santa Clara where the university was that Grinder was teaching that that Bandler was a Grin- Grinder taught at UC Santa Cruz actually. Santa Cruz was it okay? Um, one of one of the interesting things about that was uh, taking it back to um, like to jazz in a sense in, in terms of like formation of not in terms of the uh, uh, the the, uh, the the brothel side, but in terms of the fusing of ideas side of things, and because uh, yes. that is my understanding with jazz in terms of like New Orleans and uh, the the fusing together of different music and yes. the. Uh, the, f- the fact that um, there were like people from different countries, cultures, and so on, all kind of you know playing, and uh, the us musicians do like to hang out and chat and jam, don't we? Um, oh my goodness, yes. But from what I understand, there was an aspect of that within the studying that was going on uh, in in the mid seventies as well, whereby people that were doing traditionally a left brain subject also had to do a, a right brain one to sort of balance things out, and there was this sort of cross. Uh, fertilization of, of, of different ideas so you, yes. you get someone who's you know like Bandler who um, was you know into he was a mathematician physicist wasn't yes uh, a very very fine mathematician in fact and and quite an accomplished scientist as and well and old school computer programming as well uh, yes and so you get you get him talking with a linguist um, with 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 Grinder and um, all, all, yes. all of a sudden you know you you've, you've got this uh, I don't. I don't think it would have been such a, an over expansive creative um, area. The study of excellence. I don't know if that would have come out if there hadn't have been such a, uh, like a, a a mixed, balanced out area of multiple studies that went on. Absolutely, and my understanding is that both of them, both Bandler and Grinder, explicitly acknowledge Gregory Bateson as the one with whom they had conversations out of which NLP came essentially. Yeah. And Bateson was an anthropologist, yeah. not surprising. And he also introduced them to Ericsson. He, he was the, he was the gatekeeper. He's, he's, I mean, my dad, when going back to conversations and it's, it's the same in a lot of the NLP books, uh, Fritz Pearls, Virginia City, uh, Milton Erickson are, yes. are the big three that I mentioned. However, That's right. When I was doing my master practitioner uh, course, a lot of the, the talk was on um, Bateson. And and if you um, if, if you look as well about um, the connection with um, well, like pre NLP with uh, a lot of the uh, cognitive behavioural stuff as well, it, it does owe a lot to to that. A lot of the presuppositions in NLP are very similar to the cognitive distortions, which uh, I was quite surprised about. Mm, that's fascinating. And I was just reminded of a thread which is so incredibly important and mysterious and enigmatic and just shows up again and again and again and again. I realized we just got into a territory called people whose work could not possibly exist were it not for Noam Chomsky. Yes. Well said. And that is a place where, in fact, one of the most important musical lectures or a series of lectures that I ever heard in my life, which is 
Leonard Bernstein's six lectures at Harvard, which he entitled The Unanswered Question, which in my view are some of the most important lectures on music for my life that I've ever heard. Those lectures were made based upon Bernstein taking Chomsky's approach to grammar Mm -hmm. and then applying that to music. And in fact, it was those lectures which introduced me to Chomsky. And then later in life, it was a desire for me to understand those lectures more deeply and its implications, their implications more deeply, which led me to get in touch with Chomsky. And so because of Bernstein, because of a musician, I have become acquainted with Chomsky in a direct and personal way. And he's helped me with some of the, some of the work that I've done as a scholar. And then I realized that because of the influence of certain important people in my life, who were very deeply grounded in NLP, then I realized, oh, there's another thing that wouldn't have existed were it not for Chomsky is just one of those people that just keeps showing up if one just inquires. He just there he is again. There's Chomsky once again. Wow. And he just turned, I believe he just turned 90. Mm. And and he's still still going strong, in fact. That's an amazing link I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And he's a he's a deep cat and a a remarkable person. He is the the third most cited scholar in history. And if I remember correctly, the most cited scholar in history is Plato. The second most cited scholar in history is Aristotle. And the third most cited scholar in history is Professor Noam Chomsky. Wow. So yeah, he was somebody whose work... And so there was a link that one of his students, who is now the head of linguistics at MIT... The position, the position Chomsky had for many years, that man did his thesis, his doctoral thesis, using Bernstein's work on Chomsky. And the thesis he developed was the following, that the structure of music and tonal language is one structure. Mm-hmm. And then he proved that. So this is a, a link where now in the in the world of so NLP is obviously a linguistic, neurolinguistic programming. It's a use of language for whatever reason, which I have found to be so connected to the way that I use music. And this may be a thread that's very interesting in your life, with your, your father being an important person in NLP, and then you're a musician. It may be as though it's like the yin and the yang aspect mm. of, of this this part of human consciousness yeah i did uh even though i'd been studying a lot of that uh you know like i did a hypnotherapy course like 30 odd years ago um didn't take the exam i'm now taking the exam uh because yeah. at that point i i always knew that i'd become a, a healer when i was 50 which was like mm-hmm. um now that's not to say that i wasn't healing before that but in terms of me actually seeing clients and having uh like a premises within a health clinic and so on uh, yes, and I knew this in my twenties, um, and what one of the aspects to that was that I remember um, a friend of mine went for counselling um, many years ago, and when they came back, they were probably about my age now, and uh, I asked them, you know, how did it go? And the person that they were seeing was in their early twenties, which is fine, but they had a lot of knowledge, but they didn't have the life experience to understand a lot of the context of which this person yes. was talking. Uh, absolutely. Which is just life, isn't it? It's just the amount of uh, cycles around the sun, <laughs> you know. Indeed. But, but I'll tell you what, when I did the uh, the NLP Master's exam, um, well, the two things, I don't know if you've seen the, the film Slumdog Millionaire, 
but the yes uh, yes yes i remember that movie i had that moment whereby um we had i think a year to to do the exam okay uh, which was pretty in depth um but i did it because my mobility wasn't great at the time i did it over um i did it over the internet it was e-learning however it, i made sure that it was something that really um had some credibility to it you know uh, yes, it wasn't, it wasn't just a micro learning course that you print your own certificate out from. There, there was uh, right. So you had a year to to within to to take the exam, uh, and I had this Slumdog Millionaire moment whereby um, you know where he's on uh, the quiz show, and there was all these life events that leads up to knowing the answers. Uh, right, and and uh, so after two days of reading through what was not easy information it started to dawn on me that I knew all this stuff from the conversations that my dad had had with me over the years. Um, I just didn't know the names. So he would talk to me about, well, is that environment? Is that identity? Is that capabilities? Is that behavioral? Um, and then I get to this exam and I go, oh, that's logical levels. Right, I know this. <laughs> mm. So initially I was looking orders, through all of the... Orders of abstraction. Orders of abstraction is mm. another way of saying that. Absolutely. And yes. so I did the exam after two days and got 100% distinction. Well, fantastic, man. Because fantastic. My dad planted all of these seeds over the years. And uh, so, he, yeah, he, he passed away about 18 months before that. But uh, it was a, a, a beautiful thing, you know. It was when I realized what had actually happened, you know. Oh, now, now it's very clear. So there was a torch passing, clearly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's another podcast in itself. It's a really archetypal kind of thing. You know, um, definitely. There was, a, there was a, a sadness and a liberty to that event, which is uh, the most open and honest I can be. That's beautiful, Tim. In in that vein, so I'm going to give you a request, if if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a request for a solo, and then after that, I'll, I'll invite you to give me a request if you're so inclined. But may I be so bold as to ask you to improvise a musical solo? For your father. Hmm. Yeah. Can I do it on um, a tongue drum? Absolutely. As as ever you're inspired. Okay. I'll just do a level check. Can you hear this okay? That's perfect. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And what was your father's name? Just his first name, if you don't mind me asking, Tim. Uh, Albert. 
Albert. Yeah. It's beautiful. It was as though I could feel him go by. Hmm. In fact, like he was right there. So it's tuned to um, Solfeggio as well, that uh, particular drum. That was beautiful. There's something about, you know, we're saying about remote collaboration. The one thing that I do um, miss about in person, um, I mean, it's incredible, you know, as, as, as you know, we have a mutual friend in San Diego and I, I collaborate with him regularly. And so technology is, is amazing yes. because, you know, never, as I was growing up, it's one of the things about growing up pre-digital switchover kind of thing, pre-internet is that yes. I didn't think I'd be able to send somebody a track in that I'd just written and then literally within 10 seconds of that, somebody in San Diego is listening to it and I can hear it playing in the background as I'm speaking to them. That's going to trip me out. That is really trippy, isn't it? It yeah. really is. And I'm it's so like it. space in on itself almost. Yeah. I'm, I'm still glad that I... I'm glad I didn't grow up now just taking that for granted and that just being the case because it's the magic that I see every day. I send a, a track to, you know, to you and you can listen to it and you talk ab about it. And, you know, we're on two, two different landmasses and uh, we can have these conversations and we can have a conversation about a piece that I just wrote or you wrote. And Yes. Yeah, it's something really mysterious. Here I am in the north of Greece. There you are in the north of England. And yet the finished product sounds like we might as well have been in the same studio and there's this is something that technology has facilitated, which is is so unusual in the history of the world that a person living anywhere on earth now, in theory, can be familiar with any species of music from any other place on the earth. Yeah. And up until very, very recently in history, that was simply impossible most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I was about my impulse to go to the record library as a kid. Well, now you don't have to have that strong an impulse to, you know, to go to the nearest place like that and sift through, take a couple, two, three hours out of your life. Now, yes. now you can just go on YouTube and you've just got up, up next on the right-hand side and you can, you know, we've, we've all done that, haven't we, where you just have that hour or so where you just lose yourself in, in just this random rabbit hole of, okay, what's next in related lessons, you know, whether it be on yes. Spotify or, you know, sound, you know, other artists that you might like. Um, it's an amazing sort of linear way of, of, of coming across lots of different uh, artists that, and some of them are related and, but some of them have got other aspects to them and the artists that might be related to them can take you to a whole completely different direction. Yes. You know, Speaking of that, I have been doing something like that of late with Glenn Gould, the great Canadian concert pianist and recording artist, who never played a live concert after the age of 32. And interestingly enough, in his entire career as a concert pianist, he only ever did 200 live dates in his whole career. You know, comparing him to a pianist like, say, Hoffman or... or another, say, pianist of, of an earlier era, that would have been the number of concerts in a year. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And another interesting aspect of Gould is that he was also a radio broadcaster that was so trusted by the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company or Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that they let him kind of do what he wanted to. So he made these beautiful art piece, audio documentary exploration things one of my favorite is called the idea of north have you ever heard that no 
it's it is a very very it's a remarkable pure audio artwork complete with a script and and multiple voices functioning in sort of a fugal way but there's also music mixed into it there's also Gould reading certain parts that particular piece is i think it's two or three hours which they broadcast on subsequent evenings it's an exploration of the north of canada which is this massive tract of wilderness most of which is uninhabited and still to this day remains very wild Mm. And Gould just riffs on it. He creates these characters, a nurse, a sociologist, and a surveyor, I think, on a train trip having a conversation. But it's a masterpiece of audio editing, stream of consciousness style exploration of an idea. And it also has a deeply musical sensibility to it, even though primarily it's using language. Music is just sort of bookending it and opening and closing it. But he was one of those people who although he was about as brilliant in a musician and recording artist as ever lived. I mean, he's clearly like way up at the high, high end of the food chain for, for musical geniuses of our time. But he seemed to enjoy sound as an expression of being human mm. as even over and above what it was to be a musician. Mm-hmm. He wasn't identified entirely. Unlike if you say, talk to a pianist of an earlier era, like a Horowitz, Horowitz was first, last, always, and only a pianist, period, the end, pianist. Gould was a human being using music to convey what it was to be human. And if he could do that in language, even sometimes in a rather avant-garde way, so much the better. And, And then music could just be like one of the tools in his bag, along with language, along with comedy, along with what along with technology mm-hmm. which he just loved people said that when they first invented hard disk recordings most of the machines were either sony hard disks or mitsubishi hard disks mm-hmm. and they used the exact same algorithm gould could tell when they played back a recording and this is a direct to disc he could tell if they were playing back from a sony hard drive or a mitsubishi hard drive <laughs> and the engineer would tell him Mr. Gould, it's not possible. There is absolutely no distinguishing factor, but every single time Gould could tell you which one it was. So he had that kind of an ear. But he seemed to embrace technology in that Marshall McLuhan sense of that it is an extension of us or we're an extension of it. You know, which is it? But I think what I love about Gould is that even though he was one of the greatest musicians of our time, he was really first and foremost a humanist Mm -hmm. trying to be a human. And when somebody said to him, when somebody posed the question in a letter, who was the greatest musician of all time? And his answer was not surprisingly, Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. What Gould said was, I believe that this man, Johann Sebastian Bach, most fully expressed what it is to be human in his music. And that's why he had to give the answer Bach. It wasn't only a structural question or a musical question it was a human question and that's sort of were in by playing should you you know within his writing rather it should you wish and that's one of the real hallmarks of genius it's like how would you like to interact with this yes yes and i would say out of that this for me has been a really a blessed opportunity to explore between the two of us who are musicians Hopefully, we've just lived inside of that question for a little, you know, a little bit less than two hours. What does it mean to be a musician? And 
to me, it, that is a question that points at a deeper question, which is, what is it to be a human being? Mm-hmm. And, and my hope is that as musicians, we can, in our playing, sort of offer something of an answer to that, or maybe deepen the perspective on that question yeah. for others. What do, you, what do you say? Absolutely. It's where I'm currently at um, within my own uh, composition. So what I'm not doing at, at the moment, um, aside from for teaching students, is, is writing within um, specific styles. Um, so now, now what my focus compositionally is on is, and this is obviously runs parallel in terms of my own sort of spiritual development, is is creating soundscapes for people that invoke healing just from listening to them. Mm, yes. So, so what what I actually do is this becomes the soundtrack to me um, being in that state that I wish other people to feel. Yes. And so I, I I've, I've gotten a lot better, and, and studying NLP has really helped me to stu- get the main thing that that's helped me with compositionally has been for me to um, to understand about um, like the meta model and generalizations and stuff like that. Certain decisions yes. that I was making, um, yes, the 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 help with just like deconstructing structure or zooming zooming in and zooming out, for example. If I'm writing a thirty-second piece, uh, sorry, thirty-second, thirty-minute uh, piece of music that has that is a conversation between, say, ten synthesizers, then I'd better be good at structure in terms of yes. This is not a musical concern now um, because I play free time and I become the instrument, and it's not quite like um, automatic writing, uh, but it's it's a similar kind of thing where. I, I I do feel somewhat guided with where my fingers go on the keyboard because for for me quite intentionally uh, the the keyboard has been something that I yes I can look at it and extrapolate all the theory that I was taught years ago onto it. Um, however, I've deliberately kept myself uh, comfortably uncomfortable on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I dig. Uh, I do. I do understand. You know, and one of the things, if I get used to a certain key, I know this is a bit of a tech thing, but one of the things that I've started doing recently um, is that if I'm writing in a certain key and I start getting used to patterns, uh, then I just hit transpose by a semitone, and all, all of a sudden I've now got to have com- got a completely different spatial relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's like just setting reset on on any patterns. Um, that I've got just like be so that I'm just back into responsive mode um reactive mode um intuitive mode so and i, and I had that a lot yeah. with the guitar in terms of when i really got into um we'll, we'll put it in the links but there's a, an album that i did that's on soundcloud called front room sessions and mm-hmm. it was uh, there were 12 tracks but 11 of them were done on my phone with a, a, an electric guitar plugged into an app there was a, a basically an adapter that i had that allowed me to plug a guitar lead in one end, and then it just went into the my iPhone on the other end. Nice. Um, called an iRig, and um, I just hit record on it, and you had all you could have a few effects on, you know, but it was basically um, you just hit record, play, and then you can upload straight to the internet. So I, I set myself challenged because I was. Um, I was feeling really inspired and it was uh, autumn, fall, um, and 
I kind of like it when those earlier nights, when it starts getting darker a bit earlier, there's something in the air that I find quite uh, that 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 season um, of uh, there's a certain slowing down naturally, isn't there? After summer, um, more yes, you know, nature seems more. In, there's more of an introspective kind of feel. Um, and so I set myself the challenge of writing 12 songs in 12 days as a diary. Mm, mm, nice. And, and, and I think there were nine different tunings is my point. Beautiful. There, Beautiful. Which is a way of, because if you know something so well, then you are going to have your go-to patterns, you know, True. you'll see it when people, um, sit down at a piano or pick up a guitar. A lot of the time they'll have this go-to phrase that they don't even know yes. they're playing a little melody yes. or a little, you know, uh, some sort of little reactive preset conditioned idea. And so yes. having seen that a lot, it, I, I always, um, I, I like to ask myself that creative question of how can I become, even though I, I, I'm maintaining the best bits of all of the knowledge that I've got, but also not falling into any patterns uh, in terms of just like presets. Man, that is such a that is such a challenging thing. So, if I were to set a bit of a beat, and you were to improvise over it using any instrument in the room, maybe we could explore that for a little bit as we sort of bookend the show with with some musical improvisation. Uh, would Would you like to try that? I shall get my acoustic guitar just to uh, keep things nice and varied. Yeah. So I, what I'll try to do is I'll try to give a, a a feeling of continuity by making some sounds, maybe some percussive, maybe some accompaniment based sort of sound, maybe an occasional hint at an obligato. And you're going to feel free to just grab whatever instrument you want to grab, whether it's a tuning fork or an acoustic guitar or electric or just whatever you have around. And we'll see if we can bring some of these threads together, inspiration, improvisation, trying something new mm, let's do it all right Dead Oh, 
beautiful my friend yeah, fantastic so good to be with you tim sawyer thank you so much thank you for man. being with me this episode and look forward to speaking again soon absolutely take care thank uh, you Bye, everyone. thank you Pleasure.